From the mountains to the coast, create memories, meet new people, and find your favorite wine, mead, or cider in NC. Download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org to plan your trip to North Carolina wine country today. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we're celebrating North Carolina Grape Month. We interviewed Dr. Sarah Spade and Dr. Mark Hoffman of North Carolina State University. Go Pack! They talked to us about growing grapes from a research and scientific approach. As you will hear in our conversation, there's a lot to discuss, and we only scratch the surface in this episode. The wine mouths are also back in this episode. This time they tell us about the complex flavor components of wine. This episode also marks another milestone for us. We received a sponsorship grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council to help fund future episodes of Cork Talk. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. All right, so we're here today with Dr. Sarah Spade and Dr. Mark Hoffman. Sarah, Mark, welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you. Well, yeah, thanks. Excellent. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves and introduce yourselves. And Sarah, let's start with you. Okay. I, I'm now retired from the state. I was the extension viticulture specialist state for 10 years. And prior to that, I was at Washington State in a similar position, but on the wine side for 26, working with a lot of grapes. Um, but I'm a North Carolina native from Pender County, which is not where you think of maybe for a wine specialist. Um, but we had muscadine grapes, three acres back in the 60s, 70s. Just kind of got hooked on grapes from there. So I am the uh, Sarah's predecessor here, at least in 50% of my function at NC State. And uh, I have my official title is Small Fruits Extension Specialist. And uh, I work with um, the grape and wine industry in North Carolina now for three years. I'm originally from Germany, which explains my accent. And I live in the United States now for about eight years. I was in Florida and California before that. And I did my PhD in Germany at the University of Geisenheim. Um, and the University of Mainz in uh, grapes. And uh, now I work here for the last, yeah, pretty much three years. Three years and 25 days wow. in North Carolina. Yep. It's hard to believe it's been that long already, Mark. I mean, I remember when you, actually, when you first came yeah. here to the state, and I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's that's very cool. And it, it's it's been three years. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been, it's been three years, yeah. Wow, very cool. Four months of which I'm sitting at home. <laughs> <laughs> So, so Mark, Sarah, can, can one of you talk a little bit more about what um, the extension service is as part of NC State and, and what that, how that helps farmers and, and such throughout the state? Well, actually, every county in the state of North Carolina has at least one extension agent and usually many more. And what their function is, is to assist growers, uh, in some cases, homemakers, if it's a home economics person, um, with questions ranging from 
marketing to production to whatever may be the issue. And then um, if you think of it as a tiered uh, extension, and they actually dropped the word service, so it's just um, cooperative extension. And not just, it is cooperative extension. And um, above that, we, at least in the horticulture, horticultural science department, have area agents who can feed further information into either agents or maybe some of the larger growers. And then you have the specialist layer. And then, of course, you get into administration above that. But the extension uh, is part of the three-legged stool that is part of land-grant universities with research, teaching, and extension. And it's an, I think of it as an equilateral triangle where each side is, to me at least, as important as the other. Uh, and I think one of the things we need to think of extension as is adult education. We're working with people who are typically adults as opposed to the what we used to think of as a typical college student. They're usually, and in the grape industry, quite often they're, they're in a second career or have, um, they, they've fallen in love with grapes like we did <laughs> and retire and decide they want to do grapes and wine. But basically, it's a network uh, before there was the internet hmm. of connecting with publications, presentations, and answering a lot of phone calls these days or email. And I'll mark one up. So, as Sarah said, there are several layers to the extension uh, system here in North Carolina. Um, on the level of the counties, as Sarah said, we have extension agents, which are basically the people who are right at the, if you will, so at the front lines, who are basically have the boots on the ground most of the time. Um, on a county and sometimes the several county level, most of the agents, well, all horticulture agents are serving all horticulture crops in their counties. Um, but some agents are specialized more on grapes, some agents are specialized more on other crops. So we, for example, in Yakin County and, um, and uh, Wilkes County, we have two agents which are very interested in, in, in two new agents which are interested in, in, in grapes. And Henderson County, we have an agent who's very interested in grapes. So, you know, and as a specialist, which would be the higher level, so between the area-wide agents and, and, and the horticulture agents, county agents, um, we have several functions. One of one of the functions is to assess the needs of the industry and translate that into extension products. Um, that can be research, but that can also be uh, other fact sheets or, or guidelines how to do how to tackle certain product uh, problems. The second layer is to uh, um, develop capacity by working with those agents together who are um, interested in grapes and teaching them basically one-on-one -on -one to, to have them being able to, to, uh, to interact with the growers better and, and basically help them 
with their problems. And then, of course, we also connect directly with growers um, with about, um, what, almost 200 wineries and, and more than 400 grape growers in the state. That's just for one person not possible. So that is why we have to develop capacity and where we have to develop those products. Um, and I do a lot of capacity building. So we have we have teams, agent uh, area agent teams and, and uh, agent teams which which work both in the eastern part and in the western part of the state um, on grape issues. So yeah. Now the area agents were still pretty new as I was leaving. Right, right. There, that's a new thing which we have like for a couple of years now. And we didn't talk that much about the area agents really. We have three area agents in, in the state. They all three do a really good job. Um, the one in the western part is uh, his name is Greg Mauni, and and he is he works a lot with new agents to train them on especially food crops like grapes or blueberries or, or strawberries or um, or uh, blackberries. So that's like one area for for him, and and he works a lot with the new agents in Yet and and Wilkes County. And I do that too, so we're basically building a team there. One thing I would add is that whenever I would, sometimes growers kind of do the end around, and they go around the local, particularly if you, they've seen you at a meeting, they want to talk to me. I want to go straight to the specialist. And what I always ask them to do is to include the agent in the discussion. And now you would include maybe the area agent as well. Mm -hmm. uh, particularly in emails, if it's a quick question that one of us could, I'm sure Mark would do this, if it's a really quick question that's not going to involve a lot, sometimes I would just answer it and move on rather than getting this huge email chain going, but I'd always copy the county agent. Yeah, so, so what we are doing now since the last two, so usually what I try to do with the grape industry is to have an industry meeting where uh, uh, growers, winemakers, and a and county agents are present. I did it last year and I did it the year before, but this year because of COVID we're not doing it. Mm. Um, but that's something which the Grape and Wine Council also supports, and uh, and that helped us a lot to build to start building like those little teams. Which we then now we, we 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 got the project funded, which came out of those discussions for muscadine grapes. Um, that that we again with COVID we're gonna do it next year because this year we can't do it. But but um, so there is like some progress on this on this in this area in North Carolina. That's really good to hear because you, I was, as you, as you were talking through that, I think whatever you can do to expand the network for more people to get out there and help. I mean, Mark, you mentioned it over you know nearly two hundred vineyard two hundred wineries and over 400 grape growers, it's just really impossible for a small number of people to, to actually go out there and make sure they're spending time that they need to. So this network seems like it's a really great opportunity to, to build more capacity. Yeah, and I think there were 60 wineries when I started yeah, cool, in 2006, and probably half the number of growers that there are now. So it's really important for Mark. Yeah. Yeah, we we working we we do we're working a lot on on uh, team building and capacity building for not just for grape growers. It's really basically all across the crops. Um, but grape actually grapes do do have like a leadership role there because no other crop we are that far that we have actually those teams. 
um, and, and actually also can show some progress by getting money in and developing projects. That is really a great a thing which is only happening in the great world of North Carolina at the moment, at least in the, in the fruit crop world. Okay, that's, that's, that's good to know. So can you talk a little bit about what, what it's like to have this, this job in North Carolina? What are, the div, what are the pluses? What are the minuses? Um, and what you are the things you encounter? Coffee. <laughs> you drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> it's not a road time. That's I can true. imagine. It's yeah, a, it's a very long stay. Very, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it is. I put fifteen hundred miles on my car in two thousand seven in one week. Mm -hmm. Wow. We had that freeze um, on Easter weekend, and uh, I literally went from Murphy to Matteo. In that week. Hopefully you weren't taking 64 the whole way. I don't even remember the roads I was on. <laughs> right, Mark? So where do you want me to start? With the positive or the negative? I'm German, so you don't let me know what I, what I need to do. Let's, let, let's start with the positives, and then we'll kind of talk about the opportunities. So that's exactly not the German way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so um, the positives. Uh, what I really like about this job is that it's so... Um, multifaceted and that I that I work with so many different people I really enjoy working with people a lot and and I see a lot of opportunity in in building teams and 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 building capacities that is really some, that's something which I like to do and I see a lot of opportunity there I see a lot of people who want to work with grapes and I also feel that some regions in North Carolina or most regions in North Carolina have their merit in, in, in growing grapes you know so so there is a, a lot of opportunity for the industry as well in the state so I feel um, that is a very positive thing in as a professor as a research professor so not in my extension role but as a researcher I work a lot also in our department, collaborate a lot with NC State folks, and that's um, that have been always been a positive experience so far. Um, that so that's also something, and uh, working with students is something which I didn't even know that I enjoy before I came here, but I enjoyed it a lot. So so I work a lot with my graduate students, and I'm getting now two graduate students in for next year. They both work in grapes, hmm. and um, so. Those are, I would say, the most positive things about this job. <laughs> and um, I really like the mix of being able to conduct research and do go with my research into a direction which I like and which the industry needs. And also being out in the field and keep in touch with, uh, with the industry to understand what their needs are and, you know, and what the problems are. I cannot, I certainly cannot solve every problem and I certainly if I go to a vineyard, I certainly cannot always help. That's just impossible for anyone to do. But um, yeah. as long as I know that I can do something and I know who to connect uh, the grower with or, or who to ask and how I can translate that into like a, a research project, which then produces, you know, data which we can use and uh, ask to inform the growers. As long as I can do that, that's that's a very that's that's very thankfully I have that job. That's a really positive experience for me. That's a really good way of thinking about it. So I, I know you had mentioned research a couple times. What are some of the areas of research that you're interested in when it comes to either small fruits or grapes? 
so, so we're looking at um, we're we're looking at pathogens and, and diseases a lot. So we have a research grant funded which looks at um, management of fungal pathogens in, in wood and in, in, in grapes. I work with Hannah Burak on Pierce's disease, and uh, we're trying to get some funding for that in next year as well. And we are also looking on a long-term scale, how can we reduce costs in vineyard by changing growing systems, for example, or by, by looking how can we reduce those first two years of establishment so that growers do have like less investment. So that's another long-term aim of my research, uh, research program. It sounds like a really cool goal because that would really open up the door to more people getting into it because just growing grapes is a very capital-intensive process. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 So one of my students who comes in next year is going to work on, on something like that. Oh, that's exciting to hear. So what are some of the cons then? Uh, I thought you were going to ask first Sarah about the pros before we go into the cons. <laughs> no, we want to hear you. We'll, we'll, let, we'll let Sarah talk in a second. But you're, you're, oh, on roll. Okay. you're on the hot seat now. <laughs> So the cons is that sometimes or often um, I, I can handle it better right now, but in the first two years I felt I was pulled in a lot of different directions at the same time. Um, not just from the growers, because I serve several crops, not just the grapes, not, not just grape growers, um, but also from the expectations on the university level. Um, and that I can handle that better now, but it's still, for example, today, I just give you an example today. Um, so I have three students uh, at the moment. Uh, well, give, well, give me a second. How many students do you have? One, two, three, four. I, well, three students and one just graduated. So I had four and all of them uh, are making posters and presentations for a meeting, which is coming up and the deadline is tomorrow. So I have to I have to you know look through all the posts and all the presentations at the same time it is COVID and we had to make a video for the new students coming in so that's what I did before I got here, and then I have you know I answered I think two emails from growers at the same time I had a phone call with another grower for about an hour, and I still have to make my own talk, <laughs> and that so, was just the that is the Saturday. <laughs> so it sounds like you need to clone yourself. So yeah, so so I think. That's the downside of this. Is it's a very exciting job, and it has a lot of opportunity, and also, it, but I'm also stretched out very thin in sure. what I do sometimes, you know. Sure. So I, and for me, the way I am is that I'm, I'm trying to help everybody, which is always a problem because I'm, I'm stretching myself out too thin sometimes as well. So I, I try to put that more into like a direction right now and I'm learning that that lesson I'm learning that, that lesson I'm learning at the moment you know but um yeah so that's definitely a negative thing that it, I think the expectations on this job uh, the administration has a certain expectation on me the department has a certain expectation on me my students have expectations on me and the growers have expectations on me and then they not all overlap necessarily right know? so and, and so that's a problem. And then the second con I would say is literally the amount of driving I've, I have to do. That is just insane. I mean, I, I, the first two years I had 50,000 50, miles wow. on, uh, on my cars easily. 
and uh, and now in the third year because because of covid i i have only 25 so far so and i don't think it's going to be much more because i'm not driving that much anymore but you know that is just you know so that's basically there's a lot of time where you're where i'm sitting in the car which i and during that time i can't pursue any research i can't men can mentor any students i don't help a grower too because i'm in the car you know right so i don't have um that is something which i think we need a, a, a solution to because with a growing industry I, I cannot waste like hours on the street all the time because it's just not possible yeah and it, it does so. take a long time to get between you know you're based out in the raleigh area so if you're going out to you know the yakin valley or even further west it, it can take quite a while to get out there yeah yeah surrey community college is two and a half hours from from where i am at yeah um, yeah so that's five hours in the car if i if i give a, if i go there for 45 minutes talk you know so yeah and i i'm not sure if we, what the solution is of that but i think there's a lot of education which we need to do over the next couple of years but I, it's it's continuing doing this is not sustainable mm. or that's that's the so those are the cons but i'm still here so the pros are definitely overweighing the cons <laughs> absolutely absolutely i would say covid may be teaching everyone a bit about what you can do online sure. instead of having to spend your seat time in a car i mean mark is doing a lot of online workshops which you know that's not the same as seeing people but I think now that he's done that over the last couple of years and has begun to know people, you can probably start to, to wean back a bit on the amount of time. I, so I'm not saying I don't, so seeing growers and teaching, oh. keeping touch with growers is extremely important. Yeah. You know, so I, I yeah, I, again, I think that's a long-term goal and, uh, and um, I'll leave it like uh, at there. But I, I still think that we're all learning as a country that you can do a lot of things with the technology we have now. It right. still doesn't substitute. Oh yeah, there's something about you know going out there to the vineyard probably and, and looking at something and, and seeing for, with your eyes and that you know your cameras can only do so much if you're on a video call. So I think um, I think we're we're gonna get there. I think, but it's gonna take some time. But we'll have to adjust for sure. Well, for me, the pros for the job I had was that when I first came, I only had what we call bunch grapes. I didn't have muscadines as my assignment. And so really all of my work was focused pretty much, not completely, west of Raleigh, which is, again, as Mark said, a con, because I think uh, Mebane is the closest, well, not quite the closest bunch grape vineyard, but of, of any large size. Um, but I think the, the pros are the people. I came at a different career stage than Mark, and so I kind of spent 26 years picking my battles and came as a full-ranked professor. I was not going to go through tenure and promotion again after having had it at WSU. And so my focus was a little bit different because one of the things I faced when I first got back to North Carolina was that every time I went anywhere, 
All I would hear first was, oh, well, NC State told us that we couldn't grow grapes in North Carolina. <laughs> and so I spent 10 years prepping it so that Mark could come in <laughs> and not have to fight that battle. <laughs> and yeah. I, so my, what I did, I adapted the philosophy was to say, I'm never going to say you can't grow grapes in North Carolina. I can say it is very difficult to grow grapes in North Carolina and that you have to be on your game all of the time. And so I had a predominantly extension appointment with some research, and uh, at least by the time I retired, uh, they I, that happened in Washington and at NC State is that my strength was in extension um, to some degree. And, um, but I also ended up teaching at NC State um, every other year. And so you just kind of, after 26 years, you know, I didn't have to worry about tenure like Mark, um, making it through the ranks. And so I tried to work on working with growers and the extension agents in the counties, I think they've all but completely overturned almost the time I arrived and almost by the time Mark came in. There are a few that are still left, but there's been a lot of turnover and there's always new agents in the hundred counties of North Carolina. And so that's the advantage of the area agents. As long as we don't turn them over at the same pace, because they can, they're closer to the newer agents and can work with them a bit. But I could have held a, a training session for county agents at almost every year and have had a good number of people in it. So the turnover is one of the challenges. It's not a con, but it's one of the challenges. Yeah. One of the frustrations for research, and Mark probably has this, is rain and, um, and, and, deer, and funding <laughs> and, and funding and deer and turkeys and everything else on the planet that loves to eat grapes lives in North Carolina. And I've had research plots eaten by deer, turkeys, and about everything except kangaroos. I saw those in. <laughs> So, so, so this year, that's a good point. I didn't even think about that. So this year, uh, we had uh, because of the frost, there was like this. We had a lot of frost damage in in, in, in the in the in the Yadkin Valley and also the western part of the state, the mountains, and that has basically devastated all my my research drives. So we're we are going some of we're going to get and take parameters and food parameters, but we're not we will not be able to take any meaningful yield data. We're going to take berry weights and chemistry, but we're not going to take any meaning. There's no way we can take meaningful yield data. So we kind of lost that year mm. already because of the, the huge amount of frost damage we got. Uh, again, for me, it's the first time in North Carolina that we lose a trial. So so um, the, the last two years were fine, but for us at least. So we have, we have not a big problem with our trials for the last two years. I can imagine the weather being, and also the animals being a major issue with research because you'd like to have, try to have controlled, you know, environments and 
you never know if a deer's going to be hungry and come over, or like Mark, you said, there's going to be some major frost that comes through and, and wipes out a lot of things. So very difficult indeed. It'd be hard to do a yield trial when the deer fruit off your high crop load and you have yep. lower crop weights in that plot than you do in your low crop line. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe let's talk a little bit more about some of the things you just mentioned with the, the, the fruit weight, and then I'm probably getting some of this wrong and the cropping and all of that. What are the typical things that you want to uh, research in a vineyard? And is there is there a specific research vineyard that's specific to NC State, or are you researching now across the state because there's so many growers? Well, at least when I came, not have a single research station within a growing area for bunch grapes. It's a little different for muscadine, but um, for bunch grapes, uh, I, I worked out of Reedsville for a while um, at the station there, and it if you ever want to work with a high Pierce's disease location, um, where it's where you could plant bunch grapes, um, that is where you could put them. That's pretty much still the case. Um, so I try to identify locations, mostly mostly growers, who I can work with, and uh, I will I do my my research trials there. Um, because for us, it is impossible to to maintain that many trials ourselves so and that's always the biggest reason why we don't have uh, grape trials on research stations because it's a maintenance problem basically because as you know they're very work intensive over the season mm -hmm. and even in December you're going to have to you know so even in winter you're going to have to prune them and everything so we need the, the the manpower and that is basically something which most or all research the most research stations say you know what that's too much for us and to put in a let's say cultivar trial on a size that would um, be meaningful we're talking about two acres or something and that's a lot that's a lot of grapes you know? yeah. so i i had a cultivar trial at surrey mm -hmm. it was a half acre yeah the number of varieties right we, we, we i i've identified a grower and we're putting in a cultivar trial next year in the yadkin valley with with a grower who, who said he would take care of it and I trust them so hmm. um, that's yeah so that's but Surrey lost a lot of their acreage so they have like this one plot which they have but there's no space to plant new plants and um, and and the way the blocks are are set up it's hard to do some research in there if you want to do it in a in a in a um, uh, in a replicated trial basically you know so that's hmm. um, yeah. So usually we use like a a, a a a randomized block design to do our grape trials in. That's a very standard method, but it requires relative relatively amount of homogeneous space which you need to to put the trial in. So yeah. So that's that's the way the route I go for for European style wine grapes. Uh, I'm I'm identifying growers, and then for them in the Muscadine world, I work with growers in the Muscadine world. But we also have one research station close to Wilmington, which has a substantial muscadine population, where where we're probably going to put in uh, some evaluation trials as well this year, next year. So, 
know, we worked actually with Raylan on a project um, for a, three or four years. And it was the largest block of Cabernet Franc that I could find in the state, which is one of the other problems, finding enough. Let, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, with your experience and all your research, some of the things that um, you think are doing really well here in the state. Like, what, what are the, the grape varietals or the cultivars that are actually thriving? And maybe what are some things that you want to see us looking into more? That's that's a complicated question. Yeah. <laughs> I think Cab Franc is kind of a reason for the reds. Uh, I know some that I probably would not recommend uh, for yield. Um, Syrah and Viognier come to mind because of our of yield at the moment. Maybe Mark can. With my fancy yeah, research, care of that. <laughs> with fancy research, or maybe. <laughs> hmm. I, I like Chamberson and the Cham way it yeah. performs here. In North yeah. Carolina. So I, 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 I think generally, there's a general thing you can say is that uh, hybrid, hybrids perform generally. There are some hybrids which don't, but generally, perform better in our climate than what what the pure vinifera would do. Uh, generally, I would say that. Um, they're more uh, economically. They're more economically I mean, feasible. Yeah. It depends with, with vinifera. If you go into like in, uh, cultivars such as Capsoff or or um, Riesling even or Ch Chardonnay, which is, we have a lot of, we have substantial planting of Chardonnay and, and Capsoff in the state. Um, I would say that gets more to like an education effort because yeah. if you have a good vineyard manager who knows where to plant those which spot to plant and how to take care of those grapes you can grow that here but it is extremely difficult the more you get into like tight clusters and thin skins and uh, an early butt breaking you know that that really makes it extremely difficult to grow to grow in, in north carolina mm. as a general thing what i see over my limited experience here over the last three years is that Things like Petit Verdot, Petit Mensang, they work very well if you go more west um, uh, than, than Chamberson and other hybrids work work very well here. And then Cap Franc is probably the one vinifera grape, which I would think that that is, that is, a, that is doable in, in North Carolina. Um, but everything, again, you, you get, no matter what you grow, European-style wine grape, some are more forgiving. And by and some you have to be you have to stay on top of things, and then it really comes down to the vineyard manager, mm. a lot to the vineyard manager. The the thing I used to tell the growers was that Pinot Noir was pronounced Pinot Noir. <laughs> I adapted that actually. Yeah. <laughs> Did you change it or adopt it? I adopted. I didn't change yeah. it. I think it was good. Yeah. Um, that one. There's no. I'm. You know, maybe somebody's trying it, but we, ha we have never recommend it. No, I wouldn't. But we do have a few growers oh. who grow it successfully. But again, that's a it, game. I, it's a game, right? If you want to, if you want to, it de really depends where you at in your knowledge and what's your background is and what you locate, what's your location, and a good vineyard manager would know based on the location what they can grow it. You know, so that's basically that's that that really so in, in 
in North Carolina, um, it's a, it's a very management intensive crop, which means the vineyard manage, manager is, is really the key to, to like a good vineyard. Yeah, I used to use a chili pepper scale as far as level of knowledge <laughs> need to grow a specific variety, and and Pinot Noir was way beyond the five chili peppers. <laughs> you know, it was off. It was a ghost pepper. That's fun. So are there, are there certain varieties that are out there, um, maybe in some experimental plots, that you think would be interesting to try a little bit more on a wide-scale basis here in the state? Yes. I, I, so UC Davis released five yeah. uh, Pierce's disease-resistant cultivars, and that's the whole reason why we do, have, why we do want to put in the cultivar trial um, next year. And we are going to uh, test all five of those uh i have to say the two white ones they're both early butt breaking so i'm not sure if they if they're suitable here in north carolina and then there's one early butt breaking red cultivar as well but there's one uh, red cultivar it's called um, elantra noir i believe and uh, and that to me after what i've seen and what i've heard has the, the biggest um the largest uh, opportunity here in North Carolina because it has loose clusters and it is not, it's like mid season. It doesn't break like early. And it's, it's, I think it has good, it has a good, um, I think that's probably the one which, which, which we would look into the most for here, for here for North Carolina. But yeah, that's the whole reason we do the cultivar trial to look at Pierce's disease resistant cultivars. So, so I, I think the other side of cultivars or varieties is educating the public and, and market is the only, probably the main reason we grow something like Chardonnay is that it's familiar to the public and to the people that want to make wine. Um, and the same would be true with anyone who wants to grow Pinot Noir rather than Chamberson. You know, there are some tricks granted Chamberson as well to get around veggies or vegetal character in the wine, but I mean, really, it, it's it's perception and what the demand by the, the consumer is, and in in the instant of the great instance of the grape grower, the consumer is the winery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's, that's I, I, yeah, it's all that I agree with that. Um, but but I, I think the pressure disease pressure here is so high that there is a lot of pressure from the growing aspect. Yeah. It really comes, I mean, it comes really down to your market model. If you if you want to be 75% or more North Carolina, and there are a few wineries in North Carolina which are 100% North Carolina, they only take North Carolina grapes. But if you want to be 75% or more, you're going to have to start thinking about using the grapes which also can grow here, you know. So that's basically where all the pressure is coming from. If your market model doesn't look like that, if you say, you know what, I take 50%, but then take 50% out of state juice, that which also has merit, um, but then you don't, wouldn't have to worry that much about what can grow here or what, what can't, you know. So that really depends on Europe and the market model of the actual operation. But for those who want to be, you know, high percentage yeah. uh, North Carolina grown, there is a big um, push towards other cultivars because of Pierce's disease. And, um, yeah. yeah. 
and, and, you know, on the other side, if you look at muscadine, um, that is a market. Yep. We can grow muscadine, but outside of the southeast, in some areas, some migration areas of people that have moved from the south to other parts of the country who are familiar with it, um, you know, the nose goes up instantaneously because right. they... They may think you say muscat. But, but that's also a little, I have the impression that- But it's that, also an opportunity. Yes, I, so I have the impression that also changes a little bit in the industry. Um, there are a lot of wineries which, you know, think about doing both or they do both. Um, yeah. And muscadines is, muscadines is a crop where you actually can make money with. Yeah. So, and that's a big, that's a big thriver for the industry and, and the fresh market muscadine industry is exporting grapes now all over the East Coast and also in other countries. So the, the grape itself gets more known by customers yeah. as well. Hmm. So they have, they, they export grapes all the way up to New York State and they, they pl grow grapes in South America. So, so that, that industry is growing. And I yeah. think with that, the grape itself will be a little bit more known in the future. So, and, and I feel that's if we talk North Carolina wine, we're going to have to talk muscadines because oh. that is Absolutely. the one that is the one wine which grows here since, which is native here, grows here since since ever. So, so that is we're going to have to talk muscadines as, as yeah. well. Yeah. Too often muscadine gets a bad rap, but I think there really are some excellent examples of muscadine wine. And like you said, it I just you, you can plant it in the ground and really kind of almost forget about it, and it still does really well. So yeah, which is you know, so in the muscadine world, the, from a, from a viticulturist you know perspective, so from the person who goes into the field and looks at the grapes, the problems are very different in the muscadine world than they are in the vinifera world, because it's really hard to kill a muscadine. That's just <laughs> It's possible. It's harder. Yeah. It is harder. I think one of the big issues is the lack of uniformity within the canopy of ripening the fruit. I agree. At right. any one time. Yeah, and, and, the, and the lack of knowledge on how to manage. The we know so little about muscadines compared yeah. to, you know, yeah. maybe vinifera is probably the most researched fruit crop in the world. I agree. Hmm. At least, yeah, I agree. I would say, I would say so. Though. Yeah, well, among fruits, muscadine is the least. Yeah, well, except for maybe red currant. <laughs> That's a whole yeah. story. Or pawpaws. Or gooseberries or uh, anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, no. So muscadines, like all native crops in, in North North Carolina, have has a huge potential, and I feel that. As you said, there are good muscadine wines out there. There's the fresh market industry is extremely growing, um, and uh, and and it can make money. We have a lot of small muscadine growers who have pick your own operations, and they are successfully growing muscadines. So, well, and that's the that's kind of like the tasting room or a winery. Yep, right. Just pick mm. your own because there's nobody in between. Right. Yeah, and the money sense. comes to you. Yeah. So, so, so Sarah, you had mentioned um, that you know we really know very little, like research-wise, about muscadines. And and Mark, you were kind of you know, tagging along with that. What are some areas of of research that you would like to see people getting into with muscadine grapes? Everything. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean uh, seriously, the work. I, I actually gave a, 
an extension talk on this down at Duke for Duplin for that area. And I had just inherited muscadine, had no, no research trials, had grown up with 40 acres. And the premise for the, the Duplin was after was they wanted to improve the quality. And, you know, I'm sitting back and that's what I had spent my career in Washington doing was trying to raise the level of quality. And I'm going, I got up and I said, well, this is going to be a short talk because we don't really know anything about muscadine. You know, one of the issues is that we're using 400 pounds of nitrogen per acre to grow muscadines based on work that was done in the 50s when yield was the primary criteria for growing anything. And the same was true for vinifera grapes, at least in the US, because in California, almost all the rootstocks they selected were based on yield. Otherwise, they wouldn't have probably picked AXR1, which was susceptible, became more susceptible to phylloxera. And, um, and so the focus has changed over the past 70 years or more to quality. And, you know, we need to bring maybe fertilizer rates down. We need to learn how to manage canopies, how to, to prune muscadines other than looking like a porcupine <laughs> or a hedgehog. Um, Barclay Poling had done some work on that. But there's plenty of room for Mark, Mark to do work. Yeah, we haven't. Um, we having two research trials on that. Yeah. Um, even, you know, fruiting habit. Why do they keep blooming all summer? Um, you know, for a more basic study. Right. But there's plenty of questions. There, there are plenty of questions. I, 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 I just can't concur with that. There's, a, there are questions about pollination as well. Unanswered in muscadines, and then there's uh, a, a big problem. Is really, especially with so we have there, I believe, one, two, three, four big muscadine breeding programs, um, and they release a lot of new cultivars. We have a lot of seedless cultivars now, which are coming out. Some of them are already, already, um, already there and planted in North Carolina, and they have very different growing habits than than other muscadines. And and if you talk to growers. And as me as an extension specialist, I see that there are differences between even cultivars like Terra, Triumph, and Supreme. The Supreme is not not a, um, a self-fertile, uh, uh, so Supreme is a female, but, but the Terra Triumph is self-fertile. But even they show differences in how many fruit they usually set, how big the clusters are, when they bloom, when they start having their main fruit. And all those those differences, which we know, we know in, in vinifera, we know every single clone of a cultivar. <laughs> we know how that how the, how to manage that. And in muscadines, we we have like a one fits all approach, mm. basically. And that is the problem. And and uh, and most of that research is done in Carlos, which is a beast of a muscadine. Carlos is a completely different beast. If you see a Carlos wine, you don't need to know anything about grapes. If you see a Carlos wine. And then you go and see a Tara or a Triumph. Those are two different plants. There's no question about that. They grow differently. They look differently. They're they're way less vigorous than the Carlos would be. 
So, so, and we have like a one fits all approach and good We have really, really good muscadine growers in the state and they know how to handle those different cultivars because they have the experience to do it. Hmm. Um, but we do not have the knowledge on that. The base. So, the the base. so, so where, where we start with in our research, we got, a, we got a grant funded and we put in research trials this year on muscadines. Um, where we start is butt counts. How many, you know, how do we prune those things, you know? <laughs> Seriously, that's the first question we're going to have to ask. And then with some of those new cultivars, there is one cultivar which is a which is a ever-bearing grape, which I never saw in my life before, but it just continues blooming. And and uh, and how do we, you know, how we how, how do we manage this? How do we prune this? How do we shut it down? You know, how do we shut down the bloom the blooms at the end of the season? So those are all questions which we we don't have an answer to that right now from a management point of view. Well, and one other big weakness for muscadines is the fact that we only have one red grape cultivar for winemaking, muscadine, noble. True. Mm. You know, and if you look at an industry, um, if it were to develop suddenly some weakness, um, um, say over time it developed. A susceptibility to something that tends to happen when you plant large blocks right. of one cultivar or one species, you tend to get more disease or pest problems because all of a sudden, okay, there's nothing else to eat here. Mm. The the pest can maybe right. adapt or come in with it. Mm. True. Along those lines, one other problem with muscadines, which which I on a long term scale, which I see is um, that because it's such a traditional crop, people propagate it in their in their backyard, right? Which is the traditional way to do it, and and a lot of growers do that too. Uh, and and the the problem is that with that practice, you introduce disease in your populations over time. Well, ex with the exception that for most of the of the new cultivars, it's also illegal to do that. But um, but you do introduce a lot of disease into your into your system. And although muscadines are very disease resistant, there are viruses which we know are prevalent in muscadines, which you could propagate like this in your populations over time. So that is a practice which I feel it's, it's that's again an educational point of view mm -hmm. to get people to the point where they start purchasing tissue culture, cleaned up plants from nurseries rather than propagating their own plants, which is of course cheaper, <laughs> but that way if, if it doesn't go to, through tissue culture and to virus cleanup every once in a while, you always will have the risk that you will transmit something through your propagation material. So that's um, and that's a long term for the industry for on a long term scale, that is something which which can be which needs to be needs to be dealt with at some point. Well and, and the same is true for watering uh, vinifera plants mm. nurseries. Um, a lot of growers, at least when I first got here, would would call um, in March and want to know where they can buy XYZ variety put in the ground as soon as they came. And um, typically those are cultivars or varieties on, on whatever rootstock is left over. Or they may not be virus tested plants um, because not all areas are as worried about some things as others. Interesting. So I know you had mentioned nurseries, and that kind of got me thinking, are there any nurseries that are really committed to 
propagating muscadine grapes? Or do we have any nurseries here in the state? Like I know there are some like up in New York and out in, in California, obviously, but do we have any of that type of facility here in the state? So there are two nurseries I'm aware of. They are both in Georgia. They propagate and sell muscadines. Yeah, I thought my dad used to propagate muscadines. Um, it is not very enjoyable because you do it in late June, early July Oof. with green cuttings. And we did it in a burlap covered propagation house with a set on try and stay as cool as possible. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, that sounds like torture. <laughs> Dead of the summer. <laughs> I guess this is a good time for us to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about maybe just the basics of growing a grape. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica... Welcome back. Good to be here. So what are we talking about today? Today we're going to be talking about flavors. Hmm. It's always one of the most important pieces of wine, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's helpful to think about flavors in three categories, really. So your primary flavors, secondary, and tertiary. And these are where kind of the flavor happens in the process of winemaking, too. Yes. So it kind of chronologically goes in order of the wine as well. Yes. Um, and I wanted to add, too, research shows that up to 80% of the flavors we taste actually come from what we smell. So in thinking about flavors, really think about really what you're smelling, actually, in, in the wine that you're drinking. So Interesting. And, and you were saying that uh, a lot of the way that the wine is made imparts or changes the way that the flavors kind of come through. Absolutely. Great. Tell us more. So we can start with primary. So primary flavors are the flavors of the grape. So those are gonna be more kind of like your fruit flavors, um, maybe some floral, maybe a little bit of spice, but it just kind of think of it as like, what's the grape gonna smell or taste mm -hmm. like? And of course you can separate that into different kinds of fruit, your red, black, tree fruit, citrus. So you could further break that down into those categories. Um, but that's probably above and beyond this, this <laughs> discussion. We're gonna keep it a little high level. So those are your primary flavors what's inherent to the grape really yes and then we move to secondary so secondary is kind of the flavors you get from fermentation so you know as the grapes are going through fermentation chemical changes are happening and so you're going to get different aromas and flavors through that process too so that's kind of where you can pick up some different uh maybe even like vegetative herbaceous spicy your fruity flavors can still develop and change a little bit but it's just an added layer of more flavors that you can get. So when people like drink a wine and one of the common ways to describe a wine would be saying like, it's very complex. <laughs> <laughs> and what they mean by that is just kind of like, there's a bunch of layers right. of flavor. So, you know. There's a lot happening here and I'm not gonna unpack it all, but. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say when I'm, uh, when I'm writing up some of our, you know, wine postings, I am guilty of saying this is a complex wine. And it's just like, I don't, I, I can't put my finger on it or my tongue on it, but it's, there's something there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just, there's a bunch of layers of flavor and you can kind of pick out that there's different, like you can get grape flavors, you can get fermentation flavors, you can get different levels. Right. So talk to us a little bit more about the fermentation flavors. What might you expect from those? So those, your fruit flavors can develop some, 
You can also pick up some floral flavors. Yeasty, so from the actual mm-hmm. yeast that's Especially used in the fermentation. Especially with like a champagne. And even like, you know, malolactic, when it goes through the process of changing the acid, you can get some more creamy kind of flavors too with that. We all know Jessie loves her malolactic. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, can I work that in today? <laughs> it's like one of those really geeky wine yeah. terms that are really, really oh, awesome. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, but no, I didn't mean to derail you, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, coming from the winemaking process. Yeah. And then lastly, we have tertiary flavors, which comes from oak aging. So that may not be all wines, but, you know, if your red wine is has been oak aged, then you're adding another layer of flavor. Mm-hmm. So that's where you get your wood, um, caramel, nutty, vanilla, yeah. some spices, and I guess we should add, hopefully everyone knows that you're not actually tasting like vanilla and toast and all that. You know, it's it's just inherent to the winemaking process. But, you know, there's always that person that needs to hear it. No, <laughs> no shame, no judgment. Um, those flavors are not added in. They are, they are from the grape and the winemaking process. And that's kind of what's fun about all of this part is that, you're like you said, you're not actually tasting the vanilla because in most cases they're not Mm -hmm. adding vanilla but it's really just the way that they're doing it the way that they're making the wine or the the grapes and the natural processes that emulate or or replicate that vanilla flavor right and the chemical compounds and how your brain is interpreting that and you know all of that changes you can train yourself to be a better taster by smelling and tasting lots of different things and training your brain to identify different smells you know and it changes throughout the day and it changes throughout your life so um i'm pregnant right now and i've found that certain smells like i'm a better smeller (laughs) than in my non-pregnant life um which too bad i can't be drinking wine right now because i feel like (laughs) but it's helped me identify that i really do like the acidity and foods and drinks and if i'm I'm missing that in foods i i don't know i've been able to identify that easier (laughs) while being pregnant but it just it just shows as a personal example how your ability to taste and identify those flavors and smells changes throughout your life and like I was saying even throughout the day so yeah and it's a process so if you if you taste a wine and all you can pick up on at first is citrus that's fine as you go you know you may be able to pick up is it lemon or is it orange you know and it just like each level can get deeper mm-hmm. and deeper and deeper, you know. Is it apple or is it a cooked apple? Right. It really does take practice. So Yes. Yeah. You gotta so keep, keep on going. <laughs> and take notes as well. Right. And there's, you know, a very standardized kind of list checklist you can walk yourself through that will really help pinpoint those flavors or help you kind of narrow it down at least. Um and then the great thing about it is there it's such a personal process that there's really no wrong answers i mean it probably is the right answer. <laughs> uh, but it's it's very linked to your experiences and your you know your own personal profile right so. within each category like say it kind of smells like black fruit mm-hmm. you know you may get blackberry i may get blueberry those are very similar but you know if a a red wine is probably not going to be lemonine pineapple you know <laughs> And if it is, then there might be a fault there. <laughs> Stay tuned for our next segment. So do you have a flavor that you tend to gravitate more toward? So I actually, 
like that green pepperiness that you or green pepper flavor um, that you get from like a cab salve or a cab. cab franc, you know, in that family. That one's kind of fun for me to identify because once you smell it and you're like, oh, yeah, that's what that is. You can't not smell it. And right. I don't it know, took us a while to get that smell, yeah. but once you get it. And I um, am a big fan of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, so I love that kind of grassy, herbaceous flavor in white wine. I think it's a nice zang. Like, mm-hmm. it's a little unexpected. Yeah. Back to that smell, it's just such an important part of drinking the wine that that's why you devote two S's out of the four S's to it. Um, you know, swirling and sniffing and sniffing again, so it's just so important. That's why I get so angry at my husband when he drinks wine like he drinks beer. <laughs> <laughs> right, you need to enjoy it and take your time. And, you know, we're not super tasters no. by any means. It's all a journey, and, and part of it is just tasting lots of wines and different things and and working through that process and trying to get better at identifying what you're yeah. tasting. And I think a big part of it is just thinking about it. Like, a lot of times I feel like, we eat and drink and don't think about Mm -hmm. what we're doing. So with wine, it's important to actually try to think about what you're smelling and tasting. I like it when you first get a, get a glass that's like fresh from the bottle and then maybe you get a second glass later where it's had time to, you know, open up a little bit and the flavors and the smells have changed. And that, that I think is pretty cool. And it becomes much more of an experience rather than, A liquid yeah. <laughs> for your body. Exactly. Uh, well, I have a question for you guys. What's the weirdest flavor you've detected in the wine? Ooh. Hmm. Huh. Or most surprising, unusual, about colored drinks. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't personally taste that. A friend okay. of ours did. Um, but, yeah, that's not something I would want to taste in my wine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not really a fan of collard greens. So. Oh my! Stay tuned for our fall I episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe one of the um, the most surprising for me, uh, and it's not necessarily like an oh my gosh I wasn't expecting that, but it's when they use either different types of oak or newer oak, and then it just like is like really really present, and especially like in a young wine too. Mm-hmm. So like you either get like that, that blast of like a, you know, toasted coconut or really like warming kind of bourbon-y vanilla. Um, those I find, you know, pleasantly surprising for, for the most part. And that's a good point you brought up now if, that they're making wine out of whiskey barrels and stuff yeah. too. There's another layer that you could sure. get, you know, whiskey flavors right. in your wine just from the barrel. Now, how do you, how do you feel about those? Or do you think they're just a, a trend that's going to, you know, go out soon or do you think they'll be here long term? I think it's here to stay. I think it fits some people's flavor profiles that they're looking for. Personally, I'm not a whiskey drinker and that's not something I go for. Um, they're fun to taste and, and they're great. And I think it's, it creates a nice partnership between the distilleries and the wineries. I find them hard to pair sometimes with food because we're usually always drinking um, wine with our food. And it's like, okay, what am I going to pair with this? But we recently had some pizza and a, um, I guess it was a brandy barrel. Brandy barrel. Uh, and it was Cap Franc and Chamberson blend. And that actually went really well with the pizza. So that was, well, that, good. that was fun. Yeah, those you almost need like in a highball cup by the fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very true. Very true. Well, Jesse and Jessica, thank you so much for going over all the different flavors of flavor. Uh, We definitely look forward to experiencing more of those in our glass. 
Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Bye. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so we're back with Sarah and Mark. So maybe let's take a step back for a second and just talk about kind of the basics of what growing a grape is like, either for wine or fresh, uh, Mark, either muscadine or vinifera. Obviously, it's very different for that. So maybe let's talk about a muscadine because that's what somebody can probably grow fairly easily in their backyard if they wanted to. Make sure that you have at least a girl. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense. Makes sense. I've had questions, why doesn't my grapevine, Mark probably gets them every now and then, why don't I have any grapes? And I ask them, where did you get your vine? And uh, some, of them, some of them will go, well, my neighbor had this vine that I really liked, and there were all these little seedlings growing underneath, and I just took some, and, or I germinated some. They just grew them from seed. And in one case, I actually looked at one person who had taken my grape class that I taught <laughs> and talked about flower morphology, what a boy, how to tell a boy and a girl apart on a grapevine. Mm. And I looked, at, I looked at him and I went, congratulations, it's a boy. <laughs> And so you don't get any grapes. That's about as basic as you can get for the home home grower. I think, really, I mean, you can train a grapevine in any possible shape. So I think the basics, I would, so if you want to, okay, let's back up. So if you want to, a lot of people who I know have like this old muscadine grape and they want to just grow that grape just in, in a different place or they want to get it from one house to another so what you can do is if you really like that grape that is your grape and you want to keep it and you can propagate it you can take cuttings and propagate it and then take those cuttings but that's a process which takes at least a year so you're gonna to have to plan a little bit ahead what you can't do is take the fruit or you can but that's not that that's a very that's a game which i wouldn't play so you can take the fruit and germinate the seeds but that can get you everything, yeah. but but it will not get you all. everything. Yeah, it will get you everything exactly. Hmm. And um, so that's something I wouldn't do. Uh, so if you want to keep that wine and you want to move it, you you need to take cuttings and propagate those cuttings because then you can make sure that it's the same wine you had before. Okay. What you can't do is if it's like an old wine. Just dig it out and put it into the truck and put it somewhere else back into the ground. That is most likely going to fail mm. if you do that. You can do that with wines, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend that to do with like a 50-year-old muscadine or something. You know? Well, and, and one thing you could do with muscadines um, is the time of year that you want to do it. And if you know it in far enough in advance, you could actually just dig a hole and take one of the longer shoots hmm. and put it down in the hole and cover that the middle of that shoot up with soil and leave it attached to the parent vine to 
because it's going to get nutrients from the parent vine to help the, to help that new shoot grow, and it will root. Yeah, you probably have to water it a little bit. But, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, so that, Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 what you can do with muscadines. And um, if you want to plant a new plant, grow a new uh, planting of muscadines, I would highly suggest to get your wines from a nursery and not from your neighbor yeah. and, uh, and invest they're not that expensive they're 10 10 or 12 dollars a piece if you that's just if you grow like four or five wines that's not even 100 bucks and if you grow grapes then you can invest 100 bucks that's that's how i see it basically and and that would that would definitely make and then also if you want to make wine try to get a cultivar which has that thick skin and it's easier to make juice out of those. Um, and if you like a Carlos or a Noble or a Doreen or Magnolia or something, and and if you want to make, uh, if you want to have it more to eat fresh, there are some really good fresh market cultivars out there. I would try to plant one of those because you can enjoy the grapes much more than if you plant a Carlos and try to eat it fresh. So, <laughs> so that is basically my advice on on muscadines and f uh, for bunch grapes. If you want to do that, try to choose a hybrid or maybe a cap from, but I would rather go with the cha Chamberson is, is relatively easy to grow, really. So that's something which I would do. Yeah. If, so. if you want a Concord type, then Sunbelt, oh, yeah. um, which is Good a variety point. out of the University of Arkansas, and they also call it Southern Concord. Hmm, okay. Yeah. And yeah. University, University of Arkansas has a few wine grapes also, which I'm not familiar yeah. with 100%, but they, they put out some, some wine the grapes. The Planet Series, yeah. Yeah, and they have yeah. some, some other fresh market grapes like Jupiter or, or Mars or something. Which but there's also uh, other new ones, Hope, Charity. Oh, Hope, yeah. And I, I don't know the quality or how they perform here, but... Um, they have a little thicker skin. They're supposed to be seedless, but every now and then you will get a seed uh, in a good year for pollination. Might get a couple of seeds. Right. And then the basic for every grape, no matter if it's a bunch grape or like a European style wine grape or hybrid or a, 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 a muscadine or a sunbelt, um, rather an American. Uh, you want to grow the first two years you do not want to crop that plant you do want to have it develop a root system and a trunk you want to train it the way you want to you want to have it and then you should not harvest grapes that's so, like a general yeah yeah you should take any any grapes that form off very early any flowers actually mm, okay. flowers. Yeah. yeah 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 don't plant them in the middle of the lawn <laughs> or even at the edge of the lawn where they're going to get if you have an irrigation system or you're fertilizing your yard, you don't want the grapes to find their way to the fertilizer or the water because you will just be fine. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. No, that's good. Very basic advice. I mean, that's something as whether you're uh, you know looking into growing grapes on your own at home or if you're already in the industry, it's something that you may forget about, like the very basics of it. Like even Sarah, back to your point. Make sure you have a girl vine. That way you look at the grapes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I, sorry to make it so simple, but sometimes it makes more of an impact. 
Yeah. When you say congratulations, it's a boy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we've gone a lot of places with our conversation. This has definitely been really, really great. So what do you think actually sets North Carolina apart from other grape-growing regions? I have one, but I'll let you do, I'll let you do first. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> no, okay, I can go first. Okay, sorry. I just, I thought you just, okay. So what I think, what is very unique in North Carolina um, is that we really, we have probably the highest diversity on what is grown here in the state compared to any other state. I mean, the other, the only other state which I can think of which has like a similar diversity would be Georgia. Arkansas, um, you know. Arkansas, maybe. But not on that scale, and uh, yeah. yeah. So, so we have like almost 200 wineries in Georgia. Probably, I think has 70 or something. Oh wow! And and uh, and Arkansas, I don't know. But yeah, I, don't, I, I was thinking yeah. more of the types of grapes. Right, right, yeah, yeah. So, so there are some which have a similar diversity, but not on the scale we have. Not the number of wineries, and right. Virginia doesn't have nearly as much muscadine. No, no, but yeah, exactly. So. So we have, and, and we in our state, we have everything on the commercial scale from muscadines for fresh market over muscadines for wines, where we have actually wineries, good wineries that produce wines to European style, you know, you know, Bordeaux wines all the way to Italian. We have wineries which do 100% Italian wines. Well, it's a Texas variety. We have, I don't know if you have Texas cultivars. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Okay, and then um, and then all the way to Norton. So we have a lot of Norton as well. So so we really have the whole bandwidth of of um, of grapes here, and um, and that is very unique for North Carolina. And North Carolina is one of the few states where you can have a muscadine wine in the morning. You can get some fresh grapes <laughs> on the way, and you can you can end your day with like a Sangiovese, and it's all grown in North Carolina. You know, so that's really one of the few states where you can do that. And, and the other thing is that we have a huge diversity of native grapes as well, which I think, you know, if we had unboundless money would provide a good source of genetic material for developing something for ourselves, you know, but we don't have endless money. Yeah, uh, but, but I think, you know, honestly, I think that's an opportunity. Yeah. Because North Carolina has the put like the biological potential to find, you know, for example, resistance genes and, and, and genetic material which is which could be valuable to the whole industry. For example, yeah. we have muscadines are not affected by by leaf roll uh, viruses, for example, which is a huge problem in, in the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Or um, or Pierce's disease. Muscadines have uh, are resistant or tolerant against Pierce's disease, which is again a big a big um, problem in, in other in other parts of the of the of the grape world. So there is at least genetic potential to find out what's going on in those in those wines and to figure out how can we how, how would that be how would that be able to develop tools for the rest of the grape industry. I think there is a potential in North Carolina and for, for, from a research point of view. Well, and I, I think the other thing is we have a huge population of people that, uh, it, that once, even if they move in from out of state, eventually become very prideful of, of trying to drink local. Mm -hmm. 
for eat and eat local. And so I think, um, and then with the tourism that we have in the state, um, because we have so many interstates that cut through North Carolina, north-south, and then I-40 east-west, that we get a tremendous flow of people through the state that provide other market opportunities to introduce people from other regions to the grapes and to the wines. Um, you know, that's, to have, you know, if you look at the map, to have all those interstates just running vertically through the state is a real advantage from the market side. Yep. So. Over the years, um, what have been some of the things that you've been most proud of working here in the in the grape growing industry in North Carolina? Sarah, I give that to you because I've only here for three years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sarah, well, you can take this one. <laughs> I think part of it is the, the growth of the industry in a relatively short period of time. Um, when I worked in Washington, it took um, how many wineries do you 200 wineries now? Almost, almost yeah, 190 or 180 okay, or something. There were 60 here when I came in Washington in the same period. You know, it, it took, I think we got to 60 in the same amount I did. Of course, now they're up around 1,000. But um, North Carolina, the, the growth in the industry, um, I think, Getting to know the people, like Mark said, was one of the things that I really enjoyed, and and um, and getting people to wait, start pruning, or at least the, doing the final pruning as late in the season as they possibly could. Um, I think that was one of one of the things when I first came here was. Um, one of my first goals because people would have a lot of their vineyard pruned before Christmas because the weather here is so nice. And then frost is a problem. And so talk to talking to people about double pruning and really pushing the concept of leaving longer shoots and then just coming back and doing a, a, a short haircut hmm. down to the, to the, the final nodes or buds that you want to leave for fruiting. Um, and they always, I would always hear, but that's too expensive. And all I could think was, so you want to lose your whole crop. <laughs> most expensive. Right. You know, to, to lose most of the crop or to come back and do a quick pass through. If you do all of your adjustment on shoot number, that first pass, and then just come back and do a quick clip. Because you could use fairly in the least expensive labor to come back and do that last step. That makes sense. So, yeah, I, I so I'm only here for three years. So, um, I, I think what I what I really what I really appreciated was how welcoming our everybody industry was. Towards and towards me, and I think Sarah laid the groundwork for that a lot. So I, you know, I was very thankful because I was stepping into very big 
footsteps and I'm still not sure if I can fill them out. Um, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> no, it's true. And, oh, and for a while, yeah, but you know, but, but I really, I mean, I could see that I could see that the industry was very appreciative of, of, of you because otherwise they wouldn't, I, I felt very welcomed by, 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 by the, by the wine and grape industry here in, in general. And that I think has a lot to do with you. And, um, and then I think, yes, Sarah blushes. Yeah, okay. you, you almost you almost have to, the color of your shirt. I'm trying, yeah, trying. To... <laughs> they can't so, see it on they can't see it on the podcast, but I will put in a plug for for suntan lotion. <laughs> I just went through skin cancer treatment the kind of, with cream, and I will. And um, I enjoyed the beach way too much as a kid. Yeah, you got to put on your sunscreen. Yeah, um, yeah. everyone well, needs to do that. Was yes. not unheard of then. Right. Yeah, yeah. but 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 one more thing. Um, I I think what what I could do over the last three years was at least to get the industry a little bit more together and the extension agents together. So I'm kind of proud that we put together those those teams which which are committed to work on grapes, and we also were able to develop virus testing capacity at the microvirgation unit which for grapes which we didn't have before so that was in collaboration with a lot of people with uc davis and uca and and the microvirgation unit. but we, we were able to test for viruses we are now able to test for viruses and that that is something which wasn't there uh, three years ago so that's those are those are the two things i am proud of so far and then uh, <laughs> well it's excellent yeah. And many more years to come for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're kind of wrapping up on the questions here and we'll have one more question that we'll finish up with. What is it that you're looking forward to in the future for North Carolina? Adequate research support and, and, um, I think more colleagues Mark will have to work with not only in North Carolina, but in the Southeast and, and mid Atlantic. Yeah, I, I, I second that. I, uh, there's um, people who who work on grapes are very rare here in this region, and and uh, the the financial support to do some research is also very sparse for 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 that matter. And I'm trying to find my way around it with with a couple of things, but but it's hard to do that. And that is probably something which I would wish. Would change a little bit in the future, um, because if I don't have a student or or an employee like a postdoc or a, a technician working on grapes, we cannot do. I cannot personally cannot do a lot of progress on the research side, and and that is something which bugs me since I'm here, really, you know. And um, and uh, but I, I didn't find a good way around that so far. But but that is that is something which I wish would be that's a challenge, really. So what I'm looking forward to is uh, what I think what is really important for the industry in North Carolina is to become a little bit more unified and come a little bit more together. And, and uh, I hope that I can play a role in that a little bit. So that's kind of what I'm. And I feel that it's going into this direction a little bit, and I know it's a long-term process, but I, but I hope that, that we can that we can continue moving into this direction because I think that is the only way how, how we can make progress in North Carolina. So. Uh, I would second that because we 
duplication of effort because there's only one Mark and one Hannah and Sarah. We have a Sarah now. And Sarah at, at um, Surrey Community College. Right. Oh, we have two Sarahs. There's Sarah at Surrey and Sarah at the the the, the MPA, um, Ms. River. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. I was hoping I would know. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> We have two new Sarahs and, and one retired Sarah. Let's put it that Thank way. you for not saying old. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I was just going to point that out. That was really that nice of you. And that's how the German comes out again. Yeah. <laughs> so Sarah, Mark, um, it's been a pleasure. Thank you both for joining us on Cork Talk today. Uh, you two both are very valuable people. Um, in the grape and wine industry in North Carolina, and we're honored to uh, know you, and we hope to see you again soon. Our last um, really public event that we did before COVID happened was actually at Childers for the wine dinner that Mark had, and it was it was great to be able to sit next to you two and talk throughout the evening uh, with all the food and all the wine that we enjoyed that evening. So. <laughs> Again, thank you very much for taking some time out of your, your days and to uh, speak with us and to introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, we wouldn't have wine in this state without the two of you. Um, so much appreciation for being here, and we look forward to seeing you again soon once all of this breaks and having more conversations. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Sarah and Mark. There's so much going on in the world of grapes, so we'll have them back soon to talk about more. If you liked this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free run LLC production.